Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. I want to focus today on this thing called the unpardonable sin. And if you grew up in church, this was probably one of those Bible verses that when you read it, uh, it used to cause you a little bit of fear. And maybe you've wondered at some point whether or not you committed the unpardonable sin. And I certainly have, uh, you know, from when I was younger, had certain sleepless nights where I worried and agonized about, oh my goodness, you know, have I, have I committed this, this unpardonable sin? The Pharisees come and they've rejected Jesus. And what they say is that as they look at Jesus casting out demons, they say, well, the reason Jesus is able to cast out demons is because he himself has a demon. And so they say that Jesus is, the power of Jesus is actually satanic in origin that Jesus is not of God. He is not doing this ministry because God is with him or the Holy Spirit is with him, but rather it's Beelzebul, which is just another word for, for Satan or for the devil. He has different names. And so Jesus, in response to this, says two things. But first of all, he says in verses 23 to, through 26, he says that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And so his point is, look, look Satan thrives on chaos and disorder and pain and suffering. This is, you know, I read an article, how many of you this week you saw in the New York Times where it described the mental health situation in Iraq right now, where, you know, roughly 50% of young people in in Iraq, because of all the war and because ISIS, there's a massive, massive mental health crisis where like so many of these kids have PTSD and, and, and almost like half of the children have seen somebody die right before their eyes. In many cases, it's family members or relatives. And the suicide rate among these kids is, is really high. And Iraq is completely ill-equipped to be able to address the psychological needs. So from our perspective, this is a horrible, horrible and tragic and painful situation. But did you know that Satan thrives on this? For Satan, this is like Christmas. This is like the best thing he's ever seen because that is what Satan loves to do. Satan loves to destroy communities, to sow seeds of chaos in people, to create doubt, to tempt people um, away from God. And Satan loves to possess people and to to cause people to to come under condemnation and to come under... um, under bondage, bondage to addiction, bondage to shame, bondage to whatever the case may be, right? That's Satan. So you picture Jesus is going throughout the region of Galilee, and he is rescuing people from demonic oppression. So Jesus says, listen, you know what Satan is like. Satan hates people. He wants nothing but harm for people. And so if I come in here, and I'm rescuing people from the grips of Satan, how could you say that that, that I'm in league with Satan. That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's completely illogical because he said that would be Satan driving out Satan. So if Satan is loving what's happening in Iraq right now, you wouldn't see Satan going into Iraq and trying to fix things. That, that would not make sense. It would be counterproductive. So, so Jesus has, on the one hand, a kind of logical argument that says, yeah, no, that doesn't make any sense. You guys are way off base. But his second defense in, in defense of himself, I think is, is even more helpful for us. And there's a lot of insight here. So what he says uh, in verse 27, he says, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. So I titled this sermon, Jesus the Thief. Were any of you thrown off by that? 
those seem kind of not like kind of like sacrilegious, right? Jesus the thief, what in the world? Jesus is a thief. So, so this is an interesting saying. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? So here's what's really going on here. The strong man is Satan. Satan has a house, he has a kingdom, and he has possessions within that kingdom. So Jesus says, if you want to break into the strong man's house, the first thing you have to do is tie up or bind the strong man. And once the strong man, who is Satan, has been subdued, then you can go in there and you can take out of the house whatever you want. And so you see what Jesus is actually teaching here. This, this, I take this to be Jesus' kind of self-understanding of what the very essence of his ministry is about. What Jesus is saying is, Satan is the strong man. And what I have done is I have, I have busted into this house. I have tied him up. And now I'm going around and I'm stealing. I'm, I'm liberating people, things. Whatever I can get out of the possession of Satan, I'm grabbing it. And I, I, I'm off with it. I'm freeing these people. The possessions are people. So you see, from Jesus' understanding, he is the one that has tied the strong man. And so all these people that form the demon-possessed people, the sick people, he's saying, this is all his ministry this entire time, he's been going around from place to place. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's forgiving sins. He's reconciling people to God. That is the ministry of rescue. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who has gone in. I've tied up the strong man. So you are set free. And now what you see me doing when I'm casting out demons and doing all these things is I am ransacking his house. That is what I am doing. Amen? So this is, this is pretty cool. And the, this past week, I tell you, I, I've, I've talked to pastors. I've, I've looked up online. I, I've read, you know, read different parts of scripture to try to understand, you know, what... So Satan has a house? Like, what is that all about? Satan has a kingdom. And in the, in the Bible, Satan has many names. Um, he's called the, the, the prince of the air. He's called it the demon. Um, Satan, in this passage, it says even Satan has a kingdom. So Satan's a king. Like, I, I was trying to, to go back and understand what this is all about. And so just to provide a little bit of context, let's go back to the creation here. And you remember at the creation, God makes Adam and Eve, and he makes them in his image. And part of being made in the image of God is that Adam and Eve are set in place to rule over the world that God has created. So he says, I've made you in my image. Now go out and rule over the fish of the air, the birds of the sea. All of it belongs to you, but made in the image of God, Adam and Eve are kings and queens of the world that God has created. At that point in time, everything is in good order. There's perfect peace and shalom. But the problem that happens is that the tempter comes in and he begins to tempt them and to draw them astray. And he says, did God really say not to eat that fruit of the tree? And he leads them to make a mistake and they make a, a, an egregious error, right? When they fall into temptation to Satan, they disobey God and they eat the fruit, and then this brings all sorts of chaos into the world. But you see, it's very interesting. Let's think about this from a kingdom perspective. Adam and Eve were set in place to rule the earth, to establish peace, to guard the garden. And by falling prey to Satan, they did the very, the very thing that God 
put them in place not to do. Adam and Eve were set in place to watch over and protect the garden. And yet when they fell prey to Satan, they basically opened the door for Satan to come into the world to sow seeds of chaos and to establish his own kingdom. So what this means, and I think this is what spiritual warfare is all about, and this is what this passage is dealing with, is this reality that if there's a kingdom of light, which is God's kingdom, there is a counter false kingdom, which is the kingdom of Satan. And this is a real kingdom with real power, which exists to thwart the work of God, to, to, to destroy essentially everything that God has, has made good and to bring about chaos. So there is this kingdom. It is a real kingdom. It is the kingdom of darkness. And Satan is the ruler of this kingdom, which stands in opposition to God and to God's purposes. Right? So, so having understood that then, I think we could ask the question, well, how is it that Satan has any power over people? Where does that come from? And so the, the interesting thing is that, in fact, when it comes to you and I, Satan does have leverage. So Satan tempts us. He, he twists the truth. He tempts us. And then what he does is by tempting us, he gets us to sin. He gets us to disobey God's commands in some way. And then the second that we've sinned, he is the accuser. And so Satan goes to God and says, look, look what Adam and Eve did. You know, look what Ben did. God, I saw him. Uh, so I can't blame Satan. I can say Satan tempted me. But at the end of the day, right, if I fall prey to temptation, then I commit a sin. Then Satan has leverage over me. Because he can say, yeah, I tempted him, but at the end of the day, Ben still is guilty of doing what Ben did, and you can't blame me. So Satan, as the accuser before God's people, takes all of our mistakes and all of our errors and all of the ways that we've rebelled against God, and he brings that to God and says, look, God, look what they've done. You have to punish them. And because Satan has been ultimately doomed to destruction, he is in the business of trying to drag as many people down with him as possible. And so what Satan does is he goes before the Father and he says, these people deserve death. You must punish them. You owe this to me. They are going to be doomed to destruction as, as I am. Have you ever seen, um, you know, in, in some ways, this is not a perfect analogy, but have you ever um, seen on TV where you have a courtroom situation where, let's say, a murderer has committed some heinous crime, and so the person is in trial, and all the family members are there for the victim. And what are the family members there doing? They're demanding justice. And so they'll be fighting the system, making sure that whoever it was that took away their son or took away their husband that they receive their just, their just reward, their just punishment. And so the family will not rest until, you know, the person who perpetrated the crime is judged guilty and gets the condemnation that they deserve, which is going to jail or the death penalty or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so oftentimes, you know, the, the interview person will come to the family and say, you know, how do you feel after, um, after this person finally, they were... They were judged guilty, so they were, you know, they got their sentence from the judge. And the family members will usually say something to the effect of, well, you know, this, this will never, um, nothing can bring back the loss of our, my son or my husband. 
but at least, you know, we feel some measure of peace about the fact that this person has finally, the system has worked and justice has been um, done. And so this person will receive their punishment. And they feel a little bit consoled by that. So in a way, in a way, that is Satan over us. So Satan takes our mistakes, our sins, the ways that we've rebelled against God, and then like a prosecuting attorney, and if there's any prosecuting attorneys in here, God bless you. I'm sorry. This is literally the language of Scripture. He is the accuser. He is the prosecuting attorney. So Satan says to God, look what they did. You must punish them. You must judge them. You must destroy them with me. And so that is why, in actuality of fact, Satan does have a legitimate point. He's got real power. He has some authority over us. So this is a horrifying thing. But Jesus says that I've tied up the strong man, and I'm, I've gone in, and I'm liberating you. So, so what is that about? So think about this. If you were, um, were going to rob, rob a house, just imagine you're that kind of person. Hopefully none of you here have done this. It does happen. Um, my kids sometimes are worried about robbers, and we live in a, a doorman building, and I'm like, Eli Gus, like Mario is in the, the lobby. If there's going to be a robber who's going to get us, like he'd have to get past Mario and then take the elevator to the 16th floor and then somehow break into our and walk right through our front, our front door. It's not going to happen, Eli. You don't need to worry. But you know how kids are. Like they're always like kind of worried about these things. But see, imagine you're in the suburbs and you're going to rob somebody's house. Like chances are the last thing you would do would be just to walk right through the front door, especially if the person's house you're trying to rob is a strong man, right? What you would do, you would probably sneak in a back window or a back door. You'd lie in wait. You'd hide. You wait till the strong man was asleep, and then you would burst in on the strong man, subdue the strong man, and once you subdue the strong man, then you could take his stuff. But actually, Jesus, metaphorically speaking, walks right through the, the front door. That's what he does in plain sight of everyone. And Jesus pulls no punches. He comes, he confronts the strong man. The strong man fights back. The strong man thinks that if I can discredit Jesus, if I can tempt Jesus, and if ultimately I can kill Jesus, then I will win. And so that is what Satan attempts to do. He attempts to stop Jesus by inciting the Pharisees to work against him. The Pharisees come up with this plan to kill Jesus. But little do they know that when the world is looking and sees a a crucified Savior, the world thinks, we've won. Satan thinks, we've won. We've destroyed the Son of God. He is powerless. He can't do what he came to do. And yet Jesus dying on the cross and then rising up three days later is the surprise move by which the sins of mankind, of humankind, are forgiven. So you see that it's, it's crazy that the world thinks that it's one, and even Satan, I think, was completely blindsided by this because when Jesus dies on the cross, the sins of God are forgiven. So what does that mean? If our sins are forgiven, then that one thing that gave Satan leverage over us has been removed. 
You understand? If our sins have been forgiven, then that means that Satan no longer has any claim over you. The prosecuting attorney is out of business because he can no longer say, oh, look what you've done. Oh, God, look, he sinned. Why? Because Jesus, in dying on the cross, took all that sin on himself and paid the price. So we are set free. And so that is what Jesus means when he says he has bound up the, the strong man. He has taken away every authority, every power, every claim that the enemy could ever make against you has no validity whatsoever. The strong man has been dealt a fatal blow, and you are set free. You are set free. And that is why the church, or Jesus, can walk right in. The enemy's already been subdued, and you can walk out with the children of God. They're not stuck in there any longer. They've been set free. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's doing. And so Satan has no claim over you. You never need to be weighed down by addiction. You don't need to be weighed down by feelings of insecurity. You don't need to have an identity that is trying so desperately to prove your worth or your value to God or to other people. You never need to carry shame on yourself that you're not good enough for God. By Jesus dying on the cross and completely removing your sins, Satan has lost his claim on you. Therefore, you are truly set free. You are free. And that is why you can be healed. You can be forgiven. Your life can be restored. You can experience all the blessings that the kingdom of God offers you. It's yours, and no one can say anything about it, especially Satan. He has no claim over you. Now, this is um, very... There, there are a number of Bible passages that that explicitly use this similar kind of language to describe what Christ has done for us. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, 13 through 14. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion. What is a dominion? Dominion is a kingdom. Dominion is the rulership, the territory. He has rescued us from the territory of Satan, a.k.a or the darkness, a.k.a. Satan, Beelzebul, whatever you want to call him. He's rescued us from his kingdom and has brought us instead into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, that passage right there connects those two things, that, that liberation from the kingdom of Satan connected with this idea of forgiveness. Why? It's so important. Because if we're not forgiven, then we are still under the bondage of Satan. And Satan still has claim over us. But if we've been forgiven, then he has no claim over us. And he can't impact us anymore. We're set free. Uh, do we have Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 17 up? Since the children, this explains um, in a different perspective, what Christ, his mission, what it looks like, kind of if we take a step back. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Who holds the power of death? God? Satan holds the power of death. Satan's goal is to put us to death, 
to put the world to death. He has leverage because of sin. He uses death to attack God's people. And he has a right to do so because we've rebelled against God. But it says Jesus came in and shared in our humanity through his incarnation. Jesus came into our world, became a human being like us so that he could make restitution for us. So that by his death, he might destroy Satan, him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. There again, just like in Colossians, just like in Romans, our victory and our freedom, our liberation is connected to the forgiveness of sins because that is the leverage that Satan has. But if we are forgiven of our sins, then the enemy no longer has any leverage over us. And so this is the incredible truth that through the sacrifice of Christ, we are no longer counted as sinners in the eyes of God, but we are made completely righteous. Romans 8, 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free. Satan no longer has any ability to be able to accuse us before the Father. Isn't it terrifying, this idea that Satan would be accusing us? There's a passage in, in Hebrews chapter 2, actually, that says night and day, Satan is before the Father accusing the brethren, accusing us night and day. That he's looking for a weakness. He's looking for a mistake. He is constantly trying to make us feel ashamed and guilty for what we've done. This is his full-time job. It's terrifying, isn't it? And yet it says that Christ is a faithful high priest. And interestingly, if Satan is the one who's constantly night and day accusing us, remember he's that prosecuting attorney, the New Testament says that Christ intercedes on our behalf in front of the Father. So Satan is against us saying, God, condemn them. God, damn them to hell. And Jesus is saying, no, Lord, I've died for them. They belong to me. They are in me. Love them the way you love me. And so if Satan is powerful, then Christ is even more powerful. And if Satan would seek to condemn us, then the liberation, the freedom that Christ offers us is even greater and is even more powerful. And so that is what Jesus means when he says, I have come into the house of Satan. I have busted into his kingdom. I've walked through the front door. He thinks he's won because he's destroyed me on the cross. And yet that becomes the way that I have actually seized victory. And now that he's been bound, I'm going to take you and you and you and you, and we're going to walk out of this house and you're going to experience freedom. You're going to experience new life. You're going to experience and know the love of the father. That is what is happening. All right. So this is an incredible thing. But there is a catch. Uh, there is a catch. And this is where, um, as we're reading this passage, we are confronted with the reality of the unpardonable sin. So what in the world is the unpardonable sin? And is it possible that any of us have committed that unpardonable sin? <laughs> So I don't want to keep you in suspense. I felt very clearly as I was preparing this sermon that I couldn't use that as any kind of threat to like make you want to do anything. So I just want to, I'm going to lay all my cards on the table. I think God wants me to be 100% perfectly clear that it is highly, highly unlikely and probably impossible that there's actually anybody here today who has committed the unpardonable sin. 
So do not worry at all. If you were concerned about that, I want you to know at the outset, um, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. So what in the world is, is he talking about? So let's go back to our image of the house and the strong man. Satan has been bound. The forgiveness of sins has been accomplished through what Christ has done. There are people who are in the house that need to be taken out of the house. They need to leave. They've been set free. They need to walk out. But Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin. I think what he's talking about is that forgiveness of sins while offered to you and while made possible through the blood of Christ shed on the cross cannot be forced on you, but that you have to receive it. In other words, it is possible that there could be a person who is in the house The strong man has been tied up, but the person, for whatever reason, prefers to stay in the house. And even though the person could walk out the door, and even though Christ comes into the house and says, you're free, you don't need to stay here. Let's go, I love you. Let me me help you up, and let's, let's, I got a whole group of people here. They're, They're waiting for you. They want to walk out that door with you. It is possible, however unlikely, that somebody could say, you know what? Forget it. I don't believe you. And this is the Pharisees saying Jesus is sat- his, pa- his power is satanic in origin is essentially them saying, Jesus, we, we don't care what you do. We don't care who you are. We don't care about these incredible miracles that you've done. We don't care about the love of God. We just want to stay here in the house and you, we've made a concrete decision. We don't want anything to do with you. We're just going to stay here. You go ahead and leave and we'll be fine. I mean, think, think about it this way. Imagine that, imagine how insane it would be if, if you spent 10 years in some sort of, some sort of jail or a penitentiary of some, some kind. And it, it was an awful 10 years. And at the end of that time, man, you are ready to to be gone to get out of this jail, this prison. And so let's say your term has come to an end. Uh, the authorities say, you know, Ben, you've served your time. You've, you've, uh, you've been released from your debt to society. You're released. Go. Go live your life. And imagine that for whatever reason, I am like, no, I, just, I prefer to stay in this jail cell. It's really nice in here. I'm comfortable in here now. And I, I grab a hold of the bars. I'm like, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I want to stay here. Let me in here. I just want to rot in here. Now, if this was the United States of America, they would pick you up and drag you out. You can't stay in jail past your, past your sentencing time. They'd be like, no, dude. And they would bring in the guards, and they would tear you out of there. But Jesus doesn't work like that. He, he forgives you. He offers forgiveness. He's bound up the strong man. He's done everything possible for you to make it so that you can receive the forgiveness of God. But the unforgivable sin, and this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the, the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is not forgivable, is the sin of not allowing, in a sense, God to forgive you. And so let me be totally clear about what the unforgivable sin is not. Have you ever had a moment of doubt where 
you doubted whether or not Jesus was for real. You, you doubted whether he was real. You doubted whether God really loved you. That is not the, that's not the unforgivable sin. Let's say that one of your friends asked you what you did on Sunday, and because you were ashamed of being a Christian, you're like, yeah, I didn't, do, I didn't really do anything. I was just home all weekend. So you completely lied, and you completely, you know, were embarrassed about the fact that you were a Christian. Is that the unforgivable sin? No, that's not it either. And let's say, we make it even worse, and say that somebody says, is Jesus Lord? And you're like, nah, he's not, he's not Lord. I don't even know who this Jesus guy is. Is that the unforgivable sin? No. How do we know? Because Peter, Peter committed that sin. He denied Jesus. He said, I don't even know that guy. And yet Peter was made the head of the church. Huh. So you can deny Jesus, and that's not even the unforgivable sin. None of these things are the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is not a, a, is not a thing that you do. It, it's not a sin that you commit, right? All sin is forgivable. All sin. That's the incredible good news of the gospel. You can be forgiven of literally anything. You can do the most horrible thing in the world and still be forgiven of your sin. The only sin that you can't be forgiven of is if you completely outright, outright and finally reject the Savior and say, whatever it is that you've done, for, you've done for me or whoever you think you are, I want absolutely nothing to do with it. Get lost. And, and that is not just a one-time thing it's not a phase but like that's your that's the end of the matter for you i i think that's the unforgivable sin that's what it is so to be as absolutely clear as possible i think i made a slide that defines it the unpardonable sin is the sin of excluding yourself from the forgiveness of god offered in christ through the persistent willful an ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ. That is what it's all about. So, friends, there is no one here, I'm confident, there's no one here that has committed the unforgivable sin. You have not committed the unforgivable sin. Maybe you're in here today, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you're like kind of exploring or maybe you've been a Christian for many years and you've been through phases and you've been through tough times and you've, been, you've had your episodes of sin. None of you have committed the unpardonable sin because at a bare minimum, you're even asking the question. Listen, if you're worried, I heard a pastor say one time, if you're worried that you may have committed the unpardonable sin, that is enough to, should be enough to prove to you that you have not committed the unpardonable sin because if you committed the unpardonable sin, you would not care. Trust me. You would not even be asking the question. You wouldn't even be here. You would not be here. So if you're here, if you're here, then that means that you're at least curious. At a minimum, you're curious. Maybe Jesus has something to offer. Maybe there's something there that, that I need, that I want. At a minimum. And, at a, at, you know, and ideally, you actually, you've got, you put your faith and trust in Jesus. So, so you have nothing to worry about. But for, the, for, the, you know, for goodness sake, if we have nothing to worry about, then why in the world would Jesus even bring up the unforgivable sin and like make us all worried um, that, that we have, might have committed this thing? And I think that what Jesus wants us to realize, and this is why, did you know what? 
even the Pharisees that say Jesus is demon-possessed, I don't think even they have committed the unpardonable sin. And here's why. Because if they really had committed the unpardonable sin, and they really were destined to spend eternity in hell, would Jesus even bother telling them? Now, I don't think he would even have bothered telling them. Would Jesus say, oh, you've committed that sin, and now I know that you all are going to hell, so <laughs> see you later. No way, right? The reason Jesus even brings this up, he has a reason. Why? Because he wants them to turn and to put their faith and trust in him. Right? If they had no hope, he wouldn't have bothered saying anything to them. He's trying to encourage them to, to take this seriously. And I think that that is also why the scripture is there for us. Because God wants us to realize just how bad the situation was. How seriously lost we really were. How real Satan's kingdom really is. And the point is, if it was not for what Christ did on the cross for us, if the Son of God did not come into the world and rescue us, then we are all objects of wrath, possessions in the strong man's house. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus wants us to realize that was the end of the game. We had no hope, that we were without hope in the world. But he, because of his incredible, incredible love for us, was not willing to let that happen. And that is why Jesus took on himself the incredible ordeal of coming into this world, becoming like us, and taking all of our sin on his own shoulders and dying at the feet of the strong man to release him of his power and of his claim to us. So look at Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that at that time, before I came, before you put your faith and trust in me, at that time you were separate from Jesus, from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... Jesus Christ, who you were once far away from, has been brought near. Or sorry, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We've been rescued. We've been rescued. The strong man has been bound. And if that's the case, if it is the case that we were under Satan's domain, but Jesus came in and rescued us, then wouldn't it make sense that we, with every fiber of our being, and with all the energy that we have, would do absolutely everything in our power to be like, I'm going to get out of here, and I'm going to leave behind the old life. I'm going to leave behind the sin and, and the immorality, the, the drunkenness, that I am going to completely, I've been rescued from that. That's the old life, the dominion of darkness, to say, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. I've been set free. Lord, I'm yours. Do with me what you want. Let me live my life for holiness. Let me no longer mess around with sin. Let me not take sin lightly, but realize Christ died for sin, and I want to be done with that. I've been saved from that, and I want to instead live the rest of my life for you, in submission to you for your kingdom. And that could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but is basically, and I'll close with these, these, wor these words from Galatians. 
Chapter 5, verses 19 through 26. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Debauchery, fancy word for excessive partying, drunkenness, just going way over the top, self-indulgence. It's the, the ways of the sinful nature, the old life under the dominion of darkness. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they are in the house of the strong man and they just want to stay there. They don't want to leave. They just want to stay there. And he says, that is not, the people that get rescued, that is not them. That is not them. They have left that behind. And they are now embarking on a path of holiness. But the fruit of the Spirit, so this is what we see in the people that have been rescued. The people who have been filled with the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ, who I say have been rescued by Christ, have crucified the old self, the sinful nature, with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited or prideful, provoking and envying each other. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you, by your incredible strength and power, have overcome the strong man. You have overcome Satan, and you have set us free to live for you. God, may we respond with every ounce of our being in faith and in submission to you. May we leave behind the old way of sin, the old way of being enslaved by Satan, and embrace the new way of the Spirit, being set free to have true life and to be the people that you have always destined for us to be, the people that you created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.